I'm going to welcome Luke, who's going to continue in our God is Preaching series. Yeah, let's give him a, a warm welcome. Let's pray for you. Thank you, Thank you Lord, for this man, uh, for his devotion to you, Lord, for his love for you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we've already declared this morning it's all about you. And so, Father, I pray as he unpacks your word, Lord Jesus, you'd be glorified. Yes. You'd be honoured this morning. Our hearts would be uh, uh, quickened by your Holy Spirit, mm. spoken to by your Spirit, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, uh, through the things that he's prepared, the you know, things that you've laid in his heart. Thank Lord, you. I pray you would speak. We love you, Jesus. We want you to be exalted. Amen. Amen. I think Phil was quoted from books during sermons the last few times he preached, and I thought he looked so sophisticated I would bring half my library. So um, it's, it's your fault, Phil. No, I'm gonna, I want to recommend a few books in a moment, so I thought I'd um, bring them along to show you. Good morning. My name's um, Luke. Uh, I'm uh, like Phil, I'm one of the pastors here um, at Life Church, and it's um, really good to be together. We're looking again um, at the next instalment of our God Is series. We've been doing that from January, and we've looked at some really important things about who our God is and what He's like. And when we realise who our God is and what He's like, it changes everything. It changes everything about what it means to know Him, to trust Him, and to follow Him. I hate shopping. I don't know if anyone's with me. I mean, I don't mind going to Tesco to get food um, or Aldi in the middle of the week, but clothes shopping, I absolutely hate. Does anybody hate clothes shopping like me? Wave at me. Okay, a few people. A few people hate shopping. I hate shopping. And my mum, and then um, when my sister couldn't bear my mum buying me clothes, my older sister, and then my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Beth, uh, would tend to buy me clothes because otherwise I would just buy clothes. I mean, I would just wear clothes until there were holes in them. And apparently that wasn't acceptable. Um, but when I was 19 or 20, I realised that I had uh, jeans that were my only pair of jeans and they were wearing thin. And so I decided... I need a plan. I'm going to get some clothes. I'm going to take control of the situation and I am going to buy some jeans. And so I grew up in West London. Um, I went to the little shopping area near where I lived and I went to H&M. Now, I'd never been into H&M, but people had bought me clothes from H&M, which meant it must be a safe place to go to. Hopefully, ideally, I can buy exactly the same thing I'm already wearing, but in, in the worst scenario, hopefully there's at least something I can wear there. And so I got to the shop, uh, and if you're like me, you know that when you make a plan to do something brave and dangerous like going shopping, you need to take it step by step. And so I stood at the automatic doors at the front of the shop, and uh, I didn't stand in the shop. I stood just outside, just so you can feel the hot air blower come down, and I took my bearings, I looked around, and I started to make a plan. Because I know that most clothes shops are not designed to be simple for me to understand, and there is nothing more devastating than for a 19-year-old lad to be lost in the women's clothing section in the shop. And so I looked to the back, and I saw a staircase and a sign, and I thought, that's where I need to go. I need to find a sign, and it will tell me where the clothes will be for me. So I go to the back of the shop. My plan is going well. I'm not lost. I've got a plan. I go to the back and the sign says, lo and behold, men's upstairs. Great. And now we know where I'm going. I start walking up the stairs and I speak to myself. You've got to speak to yourself in these times, don't you? Luke, you're doing really well. No one knows 
that you don't know what you're doing. You clearly have bought jeans a thousand times. The shop assistants probably think you're one of them because you're so relaxed. And so I was going up the stairs. I was feeling calm. My heart started to drop. Uh, the, the, the pace started to get lower, a bit more relaxed because it was going well. And then when you get to the top, there's, there's only one other thing to do. You look around, where are the jeans? And I saw in the distance there was a rack of jeans. So I walked over to the jeans uh, to start to choose. Now, here's a question which I don't think we'll get an answer to this side of glory, but why are there so many different types of jeans? I don't understand that. I just don't understand that. There's, well, well, you know, there's boot cut, there's straight cut, there's straight taper, there's slim, there's skinny, there's... What's the difference between slim and skinny? There's regular. What does regular mean? Is it my regular or your regular? And so I look at all these jeans, and me being me, the only thing I could do to address this was I had to read every single label. You know, there's a little label on all of them, not the one saying the size, the one describing them. And I had to read each and every one of them to know, is this jean similar to the one I'm wearing? Is this similar to the one I'm wearing? Because ideally, I will buy exactly the same. And so I'm looking at this rack of jeans for about 10 minutes now, okay? And it, the plan is still on track. I haven't lost it. I haven't given up. The plan is still on track. I've made my way to the right place. And now here I am. So it is stressful. It's not hard. I mean, one of the jeans was called relaxed taper. I did not feel relaxed right now. Why would you call jeans relaxed? And yet here I was. And so I found the cut I wanted. I looked at it and thought, that looks as close to the cut that I'm wearing as best as I can work out. So these are the jeans I'm going to buy. So there's only one other thing to do, get the right size. Now, I think at least jeans only have kind of two measurements. Um, they seem to have waist and leg length. And so I thought, fine, I'm going to look at that uh, and just find the right one. So I pick up the cut that I want and I find the label, which tells you the size. And so I've gone through this full plan. This is the last hurdle. Find the right size, get into the um, changing room, make sure they fit and go. And I look at the label and it says, ages 12 to 14. <laughs> and I had been in the children's section, not the men's section, which was also upstairs. And so I did, like any self-respecting 19-year-old man, I walked out the shop and asked my sister to buy me jeans for Christmas. <laughs> Feeling in control, it's nice, and feeling out of control can be horrible. Feeling exposed, unsure, or insecure, not knowing what to do or what will happen next. But the funny thing is, I think it feels so bad to feel out of control because probably most of the time, many of us feel in control. Sometimes I do feel in control. Not the days I have to buy jeans, but some other days I feel in control. I have a plan at the start of the day and Nine out of 10 tasks are ticked. I um, have a diary and most things happen. Today doesn't look too different to what yesterday I thought tomorrow would be. And so the plan is kind of working. And in general, I tend to do what I want. I tend to buy what I want. I tend to say what I want. And so far, I haven't been thrown in prison or punched in the face. The plan tends to work. But we really do know we're not in control, are we? Most of us know that from experience. Most of us know we're not in control. For those of us who still thought we were three years ago, when the world was told to not go outside, we realised how little control we had. I didn't actually have a say in what I did anymore. And the reality of how little control I had came into stark focus. But today we will see something which I hope will help you sleep at night. 
God is in control. Not a little bit in control. Not sometimes in control, but totally in every fine detail. Our God is in control. Now that raises questions. That's not easy to think about if we actually drill into it, but it is true. And when we realise that, it gives us tremendous peace. So we're going to dive into that um, this morning. I want to show you a few um, books before we get there, though. I was meant to do this um, at the beginning of the term, so apologies. But here are some great books. If you want to dive into what I'm saying this morning or any of the other things in the God Is series, these could be great books to read. Um, The first one is uh, one that actually Tom Tom Newton recommended to us in summer. This is a great book called uh, Incomparable or Incomparable, depending on how you like to pronounce it, um, by uh, a guy called Andrew Wilson, really brilliant teacher, often teaches at New Day. Um, It looks big, but the chapters are all about two to three pages long. Um, I just kind of spent five minutes each day um, with my serial reading this. Really great kind of accessible looking, who is our God that we worship? So I really recommend that, very easy to get your teeth into. Um, The second one, uh, this is None Like Him by Jen Wilkin. This actually is a really brilliant book if you want to start to explore If God is like this, why should I care? What's the application for my life? She does really good application to start working out. If God is like this, then what does it make a difference for my life? So so, uh, I really enjoyed that book for that reason. Uh, And then the final one is um, uh, 12 Things God Can't Do uh, by an author called Nick Tucker. Uh, He's an Anglican, uh, English Anglican uh, vicar, um, but really lovely reflection both on who God is how different he is to us. Do you remember the first sermon in our series, Dan did? How different God is to us. He, he really explores that, but then has these wonderful moments throughout the book on how Christ bridged the gap uh, and how Christ is so uh, wonderful in it. So I really recommend those three books. Um, do let me know if you want to speak about it more. I haven't finished this book because it's huge. Beth genuinely bought this for me saying this would be good bedtime reading and didn't realise um, the page count. If you want to really go deep in what uh, bits of what I'm talking about today, which is how God is in control of every detail, John Piper can't stop talking about that theme. Um, and this is kind of his big whack someone round um, the head kind of book um, with it. So if you want to drill into specific things that the Bible says on specific areas of uh, God's control, God's sovereignty, his kingship, his providence is another word for that. Um, John Piper's providence. Um, I, I'm partway through, so I can't fully recommend it until I've finished it. But some of the themes he looks into are in really huge detail. Um, so if that's what you're looking for, um, that could be helpful. Okay. We're going to do a bit of a, um, a, bit of a whistle-stop through some Bible verses, and then we're going to explore a few implications of what it means that God's in control. Does that sound okay? Okay. So, God is in control. The Bible is actually embarrassingly clear on this point, um, and we're just going to look at a few verses. So Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Not some of what he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Okay, the next um, thing is Psalm 24, verse one. He's king of the universe. Oh, sorry, this isn't what the Psalm says. This is what I'm saying. Uh, he's king of the universe. <laughs> it's his. He decides to do what he, what he wants to do. And this is what Psalm 24 says. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. And it doesn't just belong to him. 
but He is the one who cares for it and who sustains it day by day, who moment by moment holds creation together. God is in control of every aspect of the world around us. There's a beautiful psalm. I'm quoting lots of psalms because they're wonderful. Uh, Psalm 104 is an exploration of how God creates, but also how God sustains. Psalm 104 verses five and six says this. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You cover it with deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. And then a bit later in verse 10, it says, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. You see that even the waters of the world are sustained and held in their perfect harmony and place in creation by God's daily attendance. God is totally in control of everything. And to be totally in control, you have to have ultimate power. You need the power to sustain all things, the power to decide what to do, the power to make those things happen. Hear the words of Jeremiah, or God speaking through Jeremiah, I should say, in Jeremiah 32. He says this in verse 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? That's the question God asks. Is anything too hard for me? Think of the angel Gabriel. When Gabriel came to Mary, he says this before before Jesus was conceived. uh, Gabriel says this to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So this is the God we have. It's embarrassingly clear just from a few verses, but it's there on every page of scripture that our God is in control. Everything that God has decided to do happens. Anything that God has not chosen to happen does not happen. God is in total control. But if we're honest, that's easy to read in scripture and say, well, it's clear, but it's another thing to look at the world around us and to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, really? Really? Is God in control? And so we're going to look at three big questions. One, if God is in control of everything, do I get to make any decisions in my life? Two, if God is in control, then what about the evil in the world? What do we do with the evil in the world? And three, it's all well and good you say God is in control, but how can he be when my life looks like this? They're the three questions we're going to ask this morning. And so the first one is, if God is in total control, do I really have any choice? Now, if you, um, if you like to think think deeply or have a bit of a, a philosophical edge to you, you might have asked this question before and it might have made your head hurt. Uh, and our heads will probably hurt a bit this morning, but what we're going to do is we're trying to look at what the Bible says in response to this answer. Because I think it's quite an understandable question. If God is totally, utterly and in every detail in control, do we actually have any choice in our lives? Are we simply robots or puppets that just follow a predetermined path that God has set out. If he, if he controls every single minute detail of everything, then do I actually have a say in my life? 
the Bible's answer is clear. You do have genuine responsibility and choices to make. That's what the Bible says. Now, we're going to explore how those things um, hold together, but, but that's what the Bible says. It says that God made us with choice, able to make decisions. You see, we're made in the image of God. And part of that image is reflecting God's will to create and to do as he pleases. We also have a will that gets to choose and make genuine decisions which have consequences. And the choices we make are very real choices. Think about page three of the Bible. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had a genuine choice. Would they trust God or would they reject him? And they choose, they choose to reject him with world-altering consequences. You see, we as humans make real choices, very genuine choices. We're by no means just robots on a, on a predetermined path. And actually, our ability to choose is a gift from God. And we, we feel that emotionally when we see parts of the world where people's free choice is oppressed. We know that. There's an instinct in us which says it's wrong to do that. But it still begs the question, how can it be? How can it be that God is perfectly in control of every single minute detail and yet I'm genuinely responsible for the choices I make, that I can genuinely make real choices? Well, I don't fully understand how, if I'm honest with you. But the Bible definitely says both are true. God never for a moment is out of control. And yet the responsibility we have to make choices is genuine and meaningful. This is made most clear in the Bible when we talk about our culpability for sin or our responsibility for our sin. Think about Isaiah 66. This is God speaking about his people who are offering sacrifices and yet whose hearts reject God, they hate God, they're wicked. He says this in Isaiah 66, halfway through verse three. They have chosen their own way and they delight in their abominations. And so I will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeased me, what displeases me. The Bible is clear. We're responsible for our choices. We are culpable for our sin. And God is right and just to hold us to account for the choices we make. As the just God above all things, he is right to hold us account for our actions. And yet in a profound way, the Bible also says that God still works even through our sinful choices. Now let's be careful here. God cannot sin. God cannot do evil. Think about James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. No, our God is good. He is perfect in every way and he cannot do evil. And yet the Bible says he works even through the sinful choices in the world. That might sound strange to you. But look to the cross. The most wicked, evil, despicable, sinful act in history. The word of God, silenced. The author of life, put to death. The son of God, eternal, crucified. The same act that was the most despicable and sinful in history was also God's great act of grace and salvation. How can that be? 
but it is. At one time, it was both the most sinful, vile point of all human history and the deepest display of God's mercy. Actually, Peter reflects on this himself in Acts chapter four when he's praying. It says this in Acts 4, 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The people conspired. That's what Peter says. The people conspired. They made choices to crucify Jesus. And yet at the same time, it was God's will that he decided beforehand should happen. Both God and man were working together during the same events and actions. And yet their wills were totally opposite. Because what humanity wanted to do at that point was to crush Jesus. And yet what God was doing was bringing salvation to the very same people who were crushing him. And so in the same act, both man and God with totally opposite wills are working with God's purposes, the sovereign ones which are achieved. Jesus himself speaks of this again uh, a little bit earlier. In Luke 22, verse 22, as he looks forward to the cross, he speaks like this. Jesus says, for the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. God is achieving his purposes. He always does because God is totally in control. And this happens as it has been determined. God has determined it, but we must not be mistaken. Judas's betrayal of Jesus was wicked. It was sinful. It was wrong. And Jesus said rightly, woe to that man. It is impossible to fully get our heads around it. Of course it is. But the Bible is clear. We're responsible for our actions. They're genuine choices. When we use them well, they reflect the image of God in us. They are, they're gracious gifts when we use our will to glorify him. But also when we choose to reject God, then we are rightly held accountable for those things. God is in control to the finest detail. And so the second related question is this, and we've already started to touch on this. If God is in control of every detail, then what about the evil in the world? What about Satan? Does God make Satan do evil? That, that can't be right because God is good. Now we touched on how the Bible is clear that humans are responsible for our actions and yet somehow God is still in control, how the same actions can have two very separate wills acting at once. And this is true for Satan's actions too. And just before we dive into what that looks like, it's just important to say that Satan is real. He's a powerful being at work in the world. He hates God and he hates God's people. And yet it's really important that we remember that Satan is a creature. Satan's created. There's only two categories of being, creator and created. There's only one creator, the God we worship, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God. And everything else, including Satan and the, and the demons, are created. Everything else is created. He is the great king over all things. And everything else is a creature he made. And that's important because even Satan's most wicked schemes and actions can't even compete with the most relaxed, most minor, most 
casual thing that God does. I mean, nothing God does is casual, but the, 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 that's the point. Is there's no competition. They're completely different categories. But let's think of the book of Job together for a second, because I think it is important that we think a little bit about evil when we, when we look at subjects of God being in control. Because that's one of the big things that comes to our mind is look at the world. Just, Phil just mentioned very briefly, thinking about terrible disasters that happen in the world, the suffering we go through, but also the evil that we look at in, in I was going to say the newspapers, but probably the, the news apps kind of day by day. There's evil in the world, wicked things happening. And that's just not out there. Many of us have experienced that. Many of us have lived that. And so we've got to ask these questions. And so let's look at the book of Job, just briefly, a long book. We're not going to look at it all today. But it starts, this ancient book, with a conversation between God and Satan. Really interesting book. Get this insight into the spiritual realm. And Satan comes before God and he accuses Job to God. He says, Job worships you, he fears you, but he only does it because he has loads of money, he's really wealthy, He's got all these possessions and all these children. He's got everything he could want. You take them away from Job and he won't worship you anymore. He won't fear you anymore. And in this fascinating insight into the spiritual dimension, God allows Satan to do as he says. He allows Satan to take almost everything away from Job. Overnight, Job loses his possessions, his wealth, and even his children. But what's very important that we see in this is how Job responds. Now, not actually because of how Job responds, so that's also really important, but for another day to see Job's response in these things. But it's important to see how Job responds because of the way he talks about God. It says this in Job 1, verse 20. And Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and worshipped. That was an, uh, an ancient Middle Eastern way of grieving. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the narrator says this, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job has just said that God who, it was, sorry, Job has just said that it was God who ultimately took away his possessions, his wealth, and even his children. And yet the narrator of this divinely inspired book says that in saying this, Job was not wrong and he did not charge God with anything wrong. He didn't sin. Job was correct in his assessment. And so again, we come to a perplexing part of scripture. Because although Satan was the one who wanted to inflict Job so that Job would curse God, Job rightly recognises that it was ultimately God who had authority to give and take away and only God. Did Satan hate Job? Did he want to destroy him? Did he want Job to turn and reject and curse God? Yes, he did. That was Satan's purposes in these actions. But was God still in control that his purposes in the very same actions would be achieved so that Job could rightly say, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes, he was. At one time, again, two very different purposes, two very different wills come together in the same action. And the important thing to notice is who won. Whose purpose came about? Because we fast forward to the end of the book and we see who was right, who achieved their purposes, God 
or Satan. But before we get there, actually, it's a long book. <laughs> it's a really long book, very beautiful book, but it's a long book. But towards the end of it, God actually starts to interact directly with Job. And this is an interesting side point, which I think is important when we think about God being in control. Because as God finally starts to speak to Job, this is what God says to Job. Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? It's hard to hear sometimes, but the reality is we cannot understand God. And because he is God, he does not have to give us an answer. That's really hard to hear. But he is God and we are but his creatures. And so when, when Job expected an answer, maybe God replied saying, but you just don't understand because you weren't there when foundations were laid of the earth. You see, God doesn't need to give us an answer. And to be honest, if he does give us an answer, I don't think we can understand it fully on this side of eternity. But it's important to know that we can trust God. Because he doesn't say, oh, I don't give you an answer because I don't care. He says, no, I'm God and you are not. And yet we know this God and we know we can trust him. Despite not understanding what's going on in our lives, despite the fact that many of us will go through things that in this life we will not have all the answers to, that we will have to say, God, I don't understand, but you are God and I am not. Despite that, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord because he is trustworthy. Because we get to the end of the book of Job and whose purposes was it that were fulfilled? Satan's or God's? It was God's. God restored Job. God saw that it was, you know, it's a complex book. But no, Job didn't reject God and curse him, but he was vindicated by God. Think of the story of Joseph too. I think that's a beautiful example. A story where Joseph by his brothers, his brothers want to murder him. The only reason they don't murder him is because they realise if they sell him, they can make some money. And so they sell him as a slave. And that, that's like, if it's put in pretty pictures in a children's book, it's kind of a fun Disney story. But it's not a fun Disney story if you think about how real and how awful those things are. In the most wicked, despicable acts of these brothers, they sell their brother into slavery. And yet God uses those very acts that many, many years later, this slave who becomes an important figure in Egypt will save millions of people from famine because of the place God has put him, on, put him in. And so though we cannot understand God's actions, we like Joseph in Genesis 50 can come to a point where we say, as Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We can't understand everything God does, but we can be totally sure in his goodness. We can't understand exactly why he does everything, but we can be totally sure that he is trustworthy in it. And isn't it good news that God is in control and not Satan? I wouldn't sleep well at night if Satan was in control. And doesn't it make you laugh when Jesus speaks to the demons and they just don't have a choice? God is in control and we can trust him. So in the midst of a world where evil is real and there is an enemy who hates us, we can stand firm. And we can have peace because we know our God is the one who is truly 
in control. But we move on to our third question. It's all well and good to see that God is in control in Scripture. It's all well and good to wrestle with some of these big ideas of of evil and sin and choice. But the reality is, often when we're approached with the idea of God being in control, it is a deeply emotional response that we come to. A response that says, and I'm not saying it's trivial because of that. We are emotional beings. I think it's really important we recognise these things. But we come to the idea of God being in control and we say, Lord, if you're in control, how can my life look like this? How did I get here? And I want to address this by talking about a story from my own life. Many of you will know um, or increasingly be able to see that Beth is pregnant, which is a great joy. Thank you. (laughs) Now, slightly public service announcement as a protective husband, that doesn't mean you can touch her tummy, okay? (laughs) Lots of you know her. That's mine. Okay, good. (laughs) PSA over. Um, But you may also know that Beth and I have been trying for children for a number of years. The first months are exciting. The next few are puzzling, and increasingly they become concerning. The questions of when become will we? And the plans that Beth and I have put in place, firstly the timescales slip, and then we realise they just plain start to unravel. But in this time, Beth and I worked hard with God. We worked hard to bring our frustrations, our pains, our unmet expectations and our questions to him. We worked hard to make sure wanting a family didn't become an obsession and an idol in our lives, while still acknowledging the deep sadness that we were walking through. And we worked hard to remind ourselves that despite what it sometimes felt like, God was good and doing good to us in this season. And after nearly three years, I felt God speak to me in actually quite a particular way. Now, God doesn't speak to me this clearly usually in kind of this particular way, but I felt very clearly God say, I need you to pray in a particular way for a certain season. Um, I'll be honest with you, I ignored this for a bit, but eventually I said to God, okay, fine, what do you want me to do? And I felt like God was saying with a few specific friends, we would pray very specifically for a miracle. And I said to God, I've only got energy to do this for three months. That's what I've got, God. And so for three months, we asked a few specific friends and we tried to, whenever we met together, to pray very deliberately, very specifically around a couple of things. And we prayed. And the first month came and it went. And the second month came and it went. And the third month came and wonderfully, Beth was pregnant. And this was incredible because we didn't know if we'd be able to conceive. It was a great blessing and gift from God. Now that was just over a year ago. And just a few weeks later, we realised we'd lost that baby. And so we walked through a time of feeling God so clearly speak, and I believe he did. God being faithful to that word, and then for that child's to be lost. Now the beautiful story goes on and uh, Beth is now um, pregnant again and the little one is due uh, in, in early summer. But it doesn't remove the question, does it? Why was God both faithful to us in that word and yet that little one died? And if I'm honest with you, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. 
But I can say to you with total integrity and even joy, I would not change the last four years of my life. I wouldn't change it now. At the time, I would have, you know, at the beginning, I would have thought what I want is, is this to be quick and easy and everything just to happen. But now, and during the process, I, I look back and I wouldn't change it because the things God taught me in those moments are incredibly precious to me. The refining fire of suffering that brought Beth and me together in our marriage. The closeness of church family who cared for us and blessed us and soothed our unmet hopes. And most of all, the preciousness of Christ in the midst of our pain. God showed me that more precious than the deep longings of my heart to be a father or the deep longings of Beth to carry my children was that Christ was more precious than any of those things. That if I had Christ, that really was enough for me. The pain was still real. The feeling of unmet hopes was still excruciating. But the peace was profound because Christ really was enough for us. And so I look back and I thank God for those years. That God taught me something, the most precious thing in those years. And I thank God for the child he has given us now. What an amazing blessing. But Beth and I are more than that, thankful to the God who is more than anything this earth has to offer, even as precious as it is. And so as we start to come to the end, there's, there's one thing I just want to kind of go into a response for, but as we start to come to the end, I want to remind us that God is in control and that is most clearly demonstrated in Christ because the Father's greatest plan of all, his plan A, God never needed a plan B. Do you know that? He didn't have to switch plans when it started going wrong. He always had a plan. It was always his plan A was to send Christ. Ephesians 1 verses 3 tells us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's great plan, the thing, he's in control of every detail, but the greatest thing that he did was take us into the plan of salvation, that in Christ, we will be holy and blameless before him. If you know Jesus, you can be enormously confident that you're safe in his hands and nothing can pluck you from them. What more assurance do we need? Christ is enough for us. But I want to I want to respond now. Now, in life groups this week, um, you have a chance. I did I did wanted to go into two different um, kind of responses to this, but I don't think we have time for that. Um, so, in life groups, you'll be able to look hopefully at James chapter four, um, when because I think when we're thinking about God being in control, are really important to ask ourselves is how do I think about tomorrow? How do you feel about tomorrow? How do you feel about the unknown in your life? Because I think that helps us to feel how much we're trusting God right now. And James chapter four is a great one of how we can look at the world and think, I'm in control. I know what's going on. Bam, bam, bam. Here's my plan. So that would be a great one to look at. But what I want to look at now this morning is do you look at tomorrow and do the what ifs, the could be's and the maybe's stop you sleeping at night? Do they fill you with anxiety? Sadly, that is true for many of us, actually. It's not just one or two of us, but many of us live with that. 
And this is, I just want to read a couple of things Jesus said, and then I want to pray. And so Jesus said this, Therefore I tell you, this is Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus speaks about anxiety, and what's his antidote? He points to the God who is in control of every single detail. He says, look at the birds of the air. Your father feeds them. Look at the lilies of the fields. Your father makes them grow in their glory. And so Jesus says, in our great uncertainty about tomorrow, we lift our eyes to the Father who is in control of every single detail and we remind ourselves, if he cares for the birds, then he'll provide for me. And Jesus so wonderfully takes us on further from that and says, once you have peace in that, you can start to lift your eyes to the things God has really made you for. He says this, therefore don't be anxious saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God is in control. And we have to look to him in the moments that we feel incredibly unsettled and anxious. It is only him that is our rock. It is him who knows every hair on your head. It is him who knit you together in your mother's womb. It is him who knows your yesterday and your today and your tomorrow. It's him who was there before creation, who chose you. And it is him who will see every day of your life out until you are with him in glory. It is him who we can trust. And we can do something as simple as looking to the birds even those kind of grimy pigeons in Cathedral Square. And we say, look how, look how God provides for them. Well, I think I know how God provides for them. It's probably all the chips that fall on the floor. But, you know, you can look at all of these beautiful creatures and you say, how does God sustain life on earth? And yet if he does that for them, he can do that for me. No, he does do that for me. And some of you are living this morning with a sense that you might say God is in control, but I've ruined my life. God might have a plan like this, but I've gone so far off it that it's actually game over for me. Look, I'm going through the motions, but I don't live in God's purposes. Can I just say something really lovingly, but slightly bluntly? Who are you to think that your failings can stop God's purposes? No, God's purposes are so good that he has a wonderful plan for your life that even what you meant for evil, Actually, even what you just meant for foolishness, God will use for good. What does Romans 8 say? He works together all things for the good of those who love him. And so if you are living with a sense of what well, I've just ruined it, it's over for me. Uh, look, God's a gracious God, but I'm just going to limp through the rest of my life. Let me tell you, you are wrong because God is the one who is in control. And do you know what his other name is? He's Redeemer. He's the one who takes the brokenness and makes us whole. We do not fear. We do not live in anxiety and we do not live in despair. Why? 
because we have hope in the God who is always in control. We're going to pray. If you're able to, why don't you stand with me? And I'm just going to pray. Um, yeah, thanks, Dave. I'm just going to pray uh, for those who are living with that sense, either that sense of daily anxiety, which is quite a few of us, or who are living with a sense that I am so far off God's um, path, God's plan for me, that I don't think there's a coming back. We've heard the scripture declared, it's not true, okay? So that's important that you've heard God's word, it's not true. And now we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to just make that real in our hearts. So um, if you'd like to, um, I just put my hands out. Sometimes that helps me have a posture before God to say, I wanna receive from you. So if that's particularly true of you, I'm not gonna make you come to the front. Uh, I'm not gonna make you put your hand up. That's good, but we're not gonna do that this week. Um, But why don't you just put your hands out to receive um, and uh, we're gonna pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you that your very presence is with us by your Holy Spirit. As we receive the words that you speak through scripture, as you've spoken through me, we in faith, we trust that you've spoken into our hearts, Lord, and that your spirit will bring to life the things that he is doing. And so I just pray for my dear brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. For those of us who walk in moments of real anxiety, that that's a daily occurrence at the moment or weekly occurrence. Father, I just pray that the truths we've heard this evening, that you are in control, that you care for the birds so you'll care for me. Lord, that you will just make that alive right now in our hearts. Father, that you would break anxiety in the name of Jesus and that you would just bring a real assurance, beautiful assurance in who you are. And as we do that, I think of... um, Philippians 4 and Philippians 4, when it tells us not to be anxious, it tells us in thanksgiving. And so I just encourage us in our hearts, let's just give thanks to God for who he is. Maybe some of the truths we heard this morning. Maybe some of the things we've seen him do in our lives as I've shared some from my own life. Let's just thank God for some of those things. Let's let thankfulness, uh, as scripture prescribes, let's let thankfulness be something that God is using to work in our hearts. And as thankfulness bubbles up, some of you are going to be brave. And let's start saying, giving thanks out loud. Let's just a few prayers. It can be one word. It can just be thanks. <laughs> let's just do that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Uh, you're the one who are my rock. You're my rock. Thank you, Lord.